So again, just a couple of things to bear in mind as we go on with this contemplation. Um, to remember that these seven limbs of awakening, these are very much interactive qualities. Um, they don't stand alone. However, in your own practice and in your own life, as we speak about these qualities, you might just reflect, you know, where, where do you feel fairly accomplished? And where do you feel actually, I really don't do much of this at all? You know, and in an intentional way, would it be more helpful for me, for example, to, to focus on cultivating equanimity or cultivating collectedness? So an encouragement as we go on with this reflection to really have a sense of how it lands in your own life and your own experience, because this is really a, 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 really a moment-to-moment -moment cultivation of this path. It is certainly not something uh, confined to a meditation cushion or a retreat. That this is really about how we live, how we live with ourselves and about how we live with each other. Another way of seeing this path that the Buddha speaks about is that it begins with sati, with mindfulness, but it's also possible to see the other limbs as all very particular nuances of sati itself, rather than as something that is separate from mindfulness. Okay? So let's talk about this third quality, and again, I've quite intentionally used the Pali here, because there isn't a single English word that captures this. Virya. Now, often, and I think not quite accurately, this is translated as energy. The more accurate translation is of a person with a strong fist. Um, it's, it really is about courage. It's about fearlessness. And energy becomes the manifestation, the way that we actually manifest that quality of courage and fearlessness. <coughs> you can see how much this is cultivated in the classroom of the hindrances. Because the hindrance patterns basically encourage us to turn away from the moment. <coughs> to turn away from what is, to turn away from dukkha. Whereas virya, courage, is asking us to turn towards vulnerability, to turn towards dukkha, and to look it in the eye. Sometimes courage, or heroism, as it's sometimes translated, fearlessness, as it's sometimes translated, <coughs> This is not just about great dramatic gestures. This is about our willingness to show up and to keep showing up and to keep showing up when so many impulses within us tell us to flee or to disconnect or to dissociate. And it is not easy to keep showing up. You, know? you might have really intractable people in your life, you know, intractable people in your families, you know. How do you keep showing up in a way that you are a felt presence? You know, you may be living with chronic illness or chronic pain, 
You know, what is it that allows you to keep showing up when there are so many apparently other options of disconnection or dissociation? So Virya is really concerned with what we do in the face of the difficult and the intractable and the, you know, the, yes, the unpleasant in our lives. Hmm? You see Virya a lot in, in how it's engaged in social justice and how Virya is engaged in social change and social transformation how much Virya is involved in being able to say no to the unacceptable. To be able to say no to the unacceptable. How much courage it takes to actually sometimes swim against the tide rather than to swim with the tide. You know, you can think of so many examples of this where you know, maybe gossip is a classic one. You know, how much easier it is to join in with kind of unhelpful or harsh speech rather than to step back and say no, or, or not even to say no, but just actually not to participate. So Viriism is not just about saying yes, it is also about our ability to say no without fear or without ill will. And I feel like probably our lives are peppered with situations where this is truly important. Very is also about our willingness to show up for ourselves. You know, we can go through so many valleys and peaks in our pathways and in our practices. You know, and we're great meditators when everything's going well. Um, and it can be, you know, quite challenging to, to show up when, you know, your mind is dull or restless or, you know, your meditation doesn't look like you think it should look, you know, or you're not getting the results that you think you should be getting. Um, it takes so much courage, actually, to actually just say, still here, you know, still showing up. So let's talk a little bit about joyfulness. A little bit about joyfulness. Um, one of my favorite, favorite themes these days. Um, it's, it's interesting how many, how many places in the text joyfulness is spoken about. You know, the Buddha said that in a mind of happiness, attention finds a true foundation. There's another wonderful quote I came across recently. It says that where there is appreciation, joyfulness is born. When there is joyfulness, the body calms. When the body calms, the mind calms. When mind and body calm, there is collectedness. Which I find to be very powerful because very often people think of joyfulness as going to be somehow the outcome of, you know, working really hard or practicing really hard, that it's going to be some kind of reward for having suffered enough, you know, that there's going to be joyfulness at the end. Whereas actually the Buddha puts joyfulness very early on in the pathway of inner development as cultivating the climate of mind in which good things happen. 
you know, like collectedness and gatheredness and calmness and stillness. He puts joyfulness as the forerunner of all of this. And, you know, people can struggle with joyfulness for some curious reasons. You know, I do think we have religious traditions that do kind of send the message that it's more virtuous to suffer than to be joyful. Um, I do feel that there can be that inner voice inwardly that says, you know, it's way too frivolous to be joyful when so many people are suffering, you know, so many people are having such a difficult time that somehow I don't deserve joyfulness, that I'm not quite good enough to deserve joyfulness. Because of negative attentional bias, it's almost like we have a perfect storm of conditions in our life that make joyfulness feel to be something that lives on the horizon, you know, or not for me, you know, or not something to cultivate. I mean, the truth is, as I mentioned earlier, we can't make ourselves joyful, we can't contrive joyfulness, but we do need to learn to make room for joyfulness. You know, and this is where mindfulness is an ally. If you consider the moments in your life where joyfulness is present, those are moments of wakefulness. They're moments of aliveness. They're moments of energy. They're moments when, you know, you're often very present. You know, they're not the moments when your mind is wandering or feeling something's missing or craving or aversion looping. Joyfulness is a renewable and renewal inwardly. And it really is something, I think, that we neglect at our peril. That we neglect at our peril. And in one of the most inspiring uh, times in my life was, you know, uh, in the early years of my practice, practicing within a group of Tibetan refugees who actually had been through so much and lost so much, and actually were so, uh, where joyfulness was in their bones. And I thought, how can this be? You know, how can this be? You're a refugee in probably one of the poorest countries on earth, in India, you know, you have so little, you've been through so much, and yet you exude joyfulness, generosity, welcome, um, humor. And I thought, these folks aren't in denial. You know, they're actually not in denial. That they actually know something that I don't know. You know, they know something that I don't know. And, you know, the, the Buddha once said that joyfulness, true joyfulness is born of a well-disciplined mind. Or that discipline is the forerunner of joy. That joyfulness is born of a well-trained mind. This is an interesting, you know, formulation. Um, when the Buddha speaks about joyfulness, he speaks about it in, well, two primarily different ways. He, he speaks about the world of sensual joyfulness. You know, that, that there's so much to appreciate in life, in music, in art, in nature, in good friendships. You know, that there is so much to really be touched by and to appreciate. So the Buddha was never a sort of denier of the world of sensual loveliness and joyfulness. And actually, this is actually something to cultivate. Because if you have those moments and those encounters where your heart is simply gladdened, your heart is simply gladdened because you're touched by something that is lovely. This gives you a taste of what joyfulness is 
and what the landscape of joyfulness is. And there's a very, very big difference between that appreciation and sensual craving, you know, where we're trying just to pursue a pleasant sensation. It's really the ability to be touched that allows for joyfulness. And for us to be touched, we need to be present, we need to be awake, we need to be mindful, we need to be here, we need to be wholehearted. There is so much in life that will not touch us at all unless we're there. And I'm sure many of you have experienced this on retreats where, you know, you go out for a walking period and your mind is filled with ruminations and obsessions, you know, and, you know, thinking about what's for lunch and you march up and down your walking path and the bell rings and you realize, I haven't been touched by anything. <laughs> you know, I haven't been, uh, yeah, I could have been anywhere, you know, I haven't been touched by anything. And I'm sure many of you have had those moments where you, you go out into your walking path and you're really present and you're really attending and you're really wholehearted and it's almost as if the world comes alive for you, you know. And in a very real sense, this is one of the functions of mindfulness is that it illuminates the world. It brings the world into something that is really alive and here for us. This is something, this is the way that we make room for joyfulness. It's the way that we make room for joyfulness, that we have those many moments of knowing when we're just all over the place and not being touched by anything. And that this is actually within the realm of our choices. That we can learn to pause, we can learn to connect, we can learn to stop for a moment and just open that sense of appreciation to what is around us. So for, for many people, joyfulness, their, their first taste is through the sensual domain. And this is not something to somehow dismiss or demean or feel that it's somehow very, very second rate. Sometimes it's, it, it is actually what, it's a lifesaver at times. Hmm? I remember years ago speaking with someone who, you know, was a very sincere student, very sincere practitioner, about to have surgery for breast cancer. And, you know, I was talking with her and I could see how, how understandably anxious she was. And she said, you know, tomorrow I'm going to practice all day before I go into hospital. I said, I think you should go to an art gallery. <laughs> Seriously, not to be flippant, not to be... Uh, you know, dismissive, but actually how well prepared are we for anything in those contracted spaces, you know? So joyfulness helps us to soften. It helps us to open. It helps us to listen, you know? And this is, again, not about some high euphoric experience. The word in Pali translates as gladdening the heart or the heart of gladness. And then the Buddha also speaks very highly of what he calls non-sensual joyfulness. Non-sensual joyfulness. Actually, the actual translation is non-fleshy joyfulness. Um, but non-sensual joyfulness. And this is inwardly generated joyfulness. Life doesn't have to be perfect, you know? Life doesn't have to be tragedy-free. But joyfulness is born of a well-collected mind. And I think any of you who've ever practiced, you know, in, in, in trainings where you're really learning to, to train the mind, to train the heart, you know, to step out of agitation, 
you begin to taste the sweetness of that inwardly generated joyfulness. And there's something deeply moving about that and deeply inspiring about that and a, a very immediate knowing of the value of this. And I think we all benefit from more joyfulness in our lives. As I mentioned during our first lockdown, which was, you know, pretty grim, wasn't it? Um, if you've cast your mind back to that, I know we all have time warps. Um, but we have, the, we have this thing in England, do you know that, about guardians, COVID guardians, guardians of the pandemic? You, you come across it? Well, well, where I live, anyway, maybe it's a Devon thing. You, you were asked to nominate people who were particularly, you know, really fine during the first lockdown, who really reached out to help people. Um, and, you know, there were actually thousands of them. You know, there were thousands of people reaching out to help neighbors and, you know, help people who were really stuck. Um, but you could nominate someone to be a guardian of the pandemic. So my partner nominated our neighbor. So what, our neighbor did a lot of good things, but people on our street do a lot, did a lot of good things. But he did a lot of good things about shopping for people, about playing music on the street, about you know, reaching out to elderly people in our neighborhood to uh, you know, provide them with food. He did loads of good things. I mean, loads of people, anybody on our street could have been a guardian of the pandemic, quite frankly. Anyway, he went, this was, this was sponsored by our local radio station. <laughs> anyway, he, he, got, he got through the process and he was named as the guardian of the pandemic in our neighborhood. And as a, as a acknowledgement of this, he got a train named after him. <laughs> but actually that, that, the whole process, interesting, apart from the train and, you know, the, the title and all the rest of it, the whole process actually was about, through all these nominations, acknowledging how much goodness people had generated during the pandemic and how much joyfulness there was in acknowledging that, you know, when everything was collapsing and everything was falling apart, a lot of people really shone, you know, a lot of people really shone and, you know, and that brought joyfulness, you know, it brought joyfulness. So there is this sense of how, you know, actually how essential this is to our lives because isn't it, it is very easy, isn't it, to be quite unjoyful. It's pretty easy to be quite unjoyful. Um, one of the ways that people sometimes, some teachers consciously encourage us is through actually gratitude practices. You know, and that, you know, at the end of every day, you, you just remember five things that you really appreciated that day. You know? And it can feel quite mechanical and it can feel, oh, you know, oh, why do this again? You know, my gratitude diary. And yet, does it make a difference? I have a friend whose mother was of the, we might say, the complaining temperament. Um, well practiced, you know, many years at it, um, very good at it, but would complain all the time about everything, you know, and whose life actually felt quite depressed. And my friend suggested to her keeping a gratitude diary. And she said, well, what a load of nonsense, you know. Who would do something so stupid as that? And went on to complain. And then when she died, my friend found her gratitude diary. That she actually had been doing this. 
you know, so it is one of the ways that's often encouraged, you know, what is it that gladdens your heart and how much do you cultivate that? How much do you cultivate that? Hmm? And how much of a well-collected mind is born of that joyfulness? Going back to that quote that when there is appreciation, there is joyfulness. When there is joyfulness, the body calms. When the body calms, the mind calms. When body and mind calm, there is collectedness. Nobody is expected to be perfectly happy when they begin practicing. In fact, many people are not happy at all when they begin practicing. But somehow I think we, we do a disservice to people by encouraging people to simply, you know, let's get to work on the difficult, rather than are we cultivating the conditions inwardly of happiness and joyfulness that allow us to approach that which is difficult in a more fearless and resourced way. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.